Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published, without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 1, Number 139, On the Mountain Near Emmaus. Jesus is with his disciples in a very mountainous place. It is a bad and rough road, and the elderly apostles find progress arduous. The younger ones, on the other hand, are very cheerful around Jesus, and they climb nimbly, talking to one another. The two cousins, the sons of Zebedee and Andrew, are elated at the idea of going back to Galilee, and their joy is such that it enthralls also Judas Iscariot, who for some time has been in an excellent frame of mind. He simply says, Master, at Passover, when we come to the temple, will you come back to Kerioth? My mother is always hoping to see you. She sent me word, and also the people of the village. Certainly. Now, even if we wanted to go, the season is too inhospitable to go along those impassable roads. See how troublesome it is, even here? And without that compulsion, I would not have set out on this journey. But we could not stay any longer. Jesus becomes silent and pensive. And later, I mean for Passover, we will be able to come? I would like to show your grotto to James and Andrew, says John. Are you forgetting how much Bethlehem loves us? asks Judas Iscariot. Nay, how much they love the Master. No, but I could go with James and Andrew. Jesus could stay at Jutta or in your house. Yes, I like that. Will you come, Master? They will go to Bethlehem, and you will stay with me at Kerioth. You have never been all alone with me, and I am so anxious to have you all to myself. Are you jealous? Do you not know that I love you all exactly the same? Do you not think that I am with all of you also when I seem to be far away? I know that you love us. If you did not love us, you would have to be much more severe, at least with me. I believe that your spirit is always watching over us, but we are not only spirit. There is man with the love of man, his desires, his regrets. Jesus, I know that I am not the one who makes you most happy, but I believe that you know how eager I am to please you and how I regret all the hours that I lose through my misery. No, Judas, I do not lose you. I am closer to you than to the others, just because I know who you are. What am I, Lord? Tell me. Help me to understand what I am. I do not understand myself. 
I seem to be a woman who is troubled by whims caused by her pregnancy. I desire both holy things and depraved things. Why? What am I? Jesus looks at him with an inscrutable expression. He is sad, but his sadness is mingled with pity, with so much pity. He looks like a doctor who observes the state of a patient and knows that he cannot recover his health. But he does not speak. Tell me, Master, your opinion will be the least harsh for poor Judas. In any case, we are all brothers. It does not matter if they know what I am made of. On the contrary, if they hear your opinion of me, they will amend their own and will help me, won't you? The others are embarrassed and do not know what to say. They look at their companion. They look at Jesus. Jesus draws the Iscariot near himself to the place where his cousin James was before and says, You are only a confused. You have all the best elements, but they are not well settled, and the slightest breeze upsets them. A short while ago we passed through that gorge, and we were shown the damage caused by the water, the land and the trees to the poor houses of the little village there. Water, land, and trees are useful and blessed things, are they not? And yet they became a curse there. Why? Because the water of the torrent did not have a fixed course, but also because of the indolence of man. It had dug various beds according to its whims. That was all right as long as there were no storms. The clear water that irrigated the mountain in so many tiny streams looked like a jeweler's work, like necklaces of diamonds or emeralds, according to whether they reflected the light or the shade of the forests. And man enjoyed them, because the murmuring streams were useful to his fields. Also the plants were beautiful. They had been planted by playful winds, with bizarre foliage and branches, and had left wide glades open to sunshine. Also the soft soil was beautiful. It had been deposited by who knows which remote floods between the undulations of the mountain, and was so fertile for cultivations. But when the storm came a month ago, the freakish streams joined together and overflowed in an irregular way along a different course, sweeping away the plants and dragging the soil down to the valley. If the water had been maintained in an orderly way, if the trees had been grouped together in woods, if the soil had been supported methodically by a suitable protection, the three good elements, wood, water, and soil, would not have become the ruin and death of that little village. You have intelligence, boldness, education, readiness, fine appearance, and so many other attributes, but they are disorganized within you, and you leave them as they are. See, you must work patiently and constantly to put your qualities in order, as order is also strength, so that when the storm of temptation comes, the good that is within you may not become an evil for yourself and others. You are right, Master. Now and again I get upset by a storm, and everything becomes ruffled, and you say that I could. Your will is everything, Judas. But there are such strong temptations. We hide ourselves up because we are afraid that the world might read them on our faces. And that is a mistake. And that is exactly the moment when you should not shut yourself up. 
but you ought to look for the world, for the world of good people to be helped by them. A fever is abated also by contact with the peace of good people. And you ought to look also for the world of those who criticize you, because, owing to the pride which urges us to hide ourselves so that our tempted souls may not be read, that would serve as a reaction to our moral weakness, and you would not fall. You went into the desert because I could do it, but woe to those who are alone, unless in their solitude they are a multitude against a multitude. How? I don't understand. A multitude of virtues against a multitude of temptations. When virtue is feeble, one must do as the ivy, get hold of the branches of strong trees to climb up. Thank you, Master. I will cling to you and to my companions, but you must all help me. You are all better than I am, says Judas Iscariot. It was the frugal, honest surrounding we, where we were brought up. That was better, my friend. But now you are with us, and we love you. You will see. I don't want to criticize Judea, but believe me, in Galilee, at least in our villages, there is less wealth and less corruption. Tiberias, Magdala, and other places of pleasure are not far from corruption, but we live with our simple souls, which may also be coarse, if you wish so, but are active and holily happy with what has been granted to us by God, says James of Alpheus. But don't you know, James, that Judas' mother is a holy woman? Her goodness is written all over her face, objects John. Judas of Cariath smiles happily at the praise, and he smiles even more when Jesus confirms it. You are right, John. She is a holy creature. Eh? It was my father's dream to make me a great man of the world, and he took me away too early and too deeply from my mother, says Judas. What have you got to say that you are always speaking, asks Peter from far away. Stop, wait for us. It is not fair that you should go on like that without considering that my legs are so short. They stop until the other group joins them. Ah, my little boat, how I love you. I have to work here like a slave. What were you talking about? We were saying what is necessary to be good, replies Jesus. And are you not telling me, Master? Of course. Order, patience, perseverance, humility, charity. I told you many times. Not order. What does it have to do with it? Disorder is never a good quality. I have just explained that to your companions. They will tell you. And I mentioned it first, whereas I mentioned charity last, because there are the two extremities of the straight line of perfection. Now you know that a straight line on a plane has neither beginning nor end. Each extremity can be either the beginning or the end, whereas in the case of a spiral or any other design which is not enclosed in itself, there is always a beginning and an end. Holiness is linear, simple, perfect, and has but two extremities, like a straight line. It is easy to draw a straight line. Do you think so? You are wrong. In a drawing, even if it is a complicated one, some imperfections may not be noticed. But an error is noticed at once in a straight line either in inclination or uncertainty. 
Joseph, when he taught me the trade, insisted a great deal that the boards should be straight, and quite rightly, he used to say, See, son, a small imperfection may not be seen in a decoration or in a turned work, because the eye, unless it is very experienced, if it watches one point, does not see another. But if a board is not as straight as it should be, even with the most simple work, will not be satisfactory, such as a poor table for a peasant. It will be on a slant, or it will wobble. It is only good for the fire. We can say the same applies to souls. If we do not want to be good, but for the eternal fire, that is, if we want to conquer heaven, we must be perfect like a board which is planed and squared properly, who starts his spiritual work in an unplanned manner, starting from useless things, jumping from one thing to another like a restless bird, will end up by not being able to join the various parts of his work. They will not fit in. Therefore, order and charity. Then, holding those two extremities firm in two vices so that they may not move, you can work on all the rest, decorations or carving, whatever it may be. Have you understood? Yes, I have. Peter endures his lesson in silence and suddenly concludes, So, my brother is more clever than I am. He is really tidy, one step after the other, calm and quiet. He does not seem to be moving. Instead, I would like to do a lot of things quickly, and I do nothing. Who will help me? Your good will, Peter. Do not be afraid. You do things, too. You are making yourself. What about me? You too, Philip. And what about me? I do not seem to be good for anything. No, Thomas, you work too. You all work. You are wild trees, but the grafts will slowly and certainly change you, and you are my joy. There you are. We are sad, and you console us. We are weak, and you fortify us. We are afraid, and you encourage us. You are always ready with advice and comfort for everybody, and for every case. How can you be always ready and so good, Master? My friends, that is why I came, knowing what I was going to find and what I had to do. If one has no illusions, one has no disappointments. And thus, one does not lose enthusiasm, and one proceeds. Remember that when you too will have to work at the animal man to make the spiritual man and the visionary. My Way of Life from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood Chapter 2 Continued Knowledge and Love of God The most intense living is to know and to love, for this is the most active and the most completely intrinsic of the living borrowed from God. Even our ordinary speech betrays our complete acceptance of this truth, for we see and speak openly of the second life, or second nature, a man can build within himself by his knowledge and his love. So any work in which a man delights, towards which he has a bent, on which he spends his time, and to which his life is ordered, is said to be the life of a man. Thus we speak of a man living a life of indulgence, a life of virtue, an active life, or a contemplative life. 
The Gospels have, in fact, given just such a definition of life with God. For this is eternal life, to know the one true God. What we mean by this, of course, is that just as life is the principle of activity in a man, so the habits, good or evil, that he builds within himself are also principles from which flow the actions that give the distinctive color to each man's living. To know something of ourselves is already to know a great deal about God, for we are made in his image. Our life is a drudgery without love. It is vacuous, stupid without knowledge. It approaches the hot flame of intensity when the fires of mind and heart are fed with the fuel of truth and goodness and fanned into a conflagration by the rush to far horizons. The inner life of God is an infinitely intense life, a life of infinite truth, comprehended and infinite goodness, wholly embraced. With us, our minds lift veil after veil to show us goodness that is still lacking, still to be reached for. So our will, the faculty of our desire and our love, is in ceaseless pursuit of goodness, pausing only in passing for momentary rest and enjoyment of what little of goodness is already within our grasp. On this earth, our life is one of seeking, of constant pursuit. God's life is one of eternal, complete possession. His will has no need to pursue. It need only love. If we see last in God what is to be seen first, we will most surely distort the divine beauty. So if we see his will as a thing of terror, an insurmountable challenge to our will, an irresponsible cause of evil, or a constant worry to our best efforts to be in harmony with it, we have distorted the will of God, and we recoil from a monster of our own making. That divine will must be seen first in its primary and eternal activity as a roaring flame, warming all the halls of eternity with the fervor of its love. We must see, in other words, something of the sublime attractiveness of the divine will before we can begin to see rightly its might, its mysterious working with our own will and with the world. <clears throat> Among ourselves, we can judge the fineness of genuine worth as against the coarseness of worthlessness in terms of a person's capacity to love. The selfish, the petty, the cowardly, are easily and accurately ranked inferior to the generous, the great-souled, the recklessly gallant, whose love does not count dollars, hours, sufferings, nor even life itself. In God we see a love that measures up to the infinite lovableness of divinity, a love worthy of God, the love of a will completely at rest yet ceaselessly active in an eternal embrace of a good beyond all measuring. This is the original of all that we can ever see of superb generosity in human love. Compared to this, even so shining a love as Our Lady's is only a spark. Behind and through every other activity of that divine will is this roaring flame of eternal surrender that is the first and never-ceasing action of the will of God. The divine goodness, perfectly known, is utterly irresistible even to God. His love of the divine goodness is inescapable, more necessary than the regularity of sunrise or the eternal security of the saint's vision of God. This God himself must do. 
he must love his divine goodness, and infinitely. Any other supposition is absurd, as if God could find something not lovable about infinite perfection, or a rival to entice his heart away from divinity's beauty, or an ignorance that makes him blind to all that is good. God necessarily loves himself. His divine will goes out to all else besides himself, not necessarily but freely. Yet even these things God must love for his own sake. To say that God wills all for his own sake is not a statement of infinite selfishness. It is only saying that there is no defect in God. There is no good outside of him for which he must reach, no lack in his infinite perfection. For him to will for his own sake is not a miser's greedy grabbing of every last penny despite his hoarded wealth. Rather, it is the extravagant sharing of one whose riches cannot diminish no matter how widely they are shared. One who has all can only share. He cannot acquire more. That is what the theologians mean when they speak of God as the perfect agent whose only mode of acting is sharing the fullness of his goodness. We who have so little must constantly be reaching for more. For us, to act for our own sake is to lay out a program of aggrandizement. Even our most generous, most unselfish acts of self-sacrificing love are never separable from the process of perfecting ourselves. In fact, we do most for ourselves when we think least of ourselves and most of God and our neighbor. We are imperfect agents whose every act must perfect or destroy perfection. To see God's will in the light of our own is to be blind to that first essential unending activity of the divine will, the eternal embrace of divine goodness that leaves the will nothing to desire and everything to share. With that first act of God's will in sharp charity, clarity before our eyes, we can understand St. Augustine's profound words, Because God is good, we exist. There is no other cause to be assigned to God's willing, for there is no rival to the divine goodness to entice God's will into action. It is his will that is the ultimate source of the creative movement that brought us into being, and that movement could be sparked by nothing other than the divine goodness. Because God is good, we exist. Because God so loves his infinite goodness, we are called into being that we might share that goodness and that love. What is there of terror in the fact that a will that makes dim the fire of a seraph's love is omnipotent, unfailingly effective? Love can indeed be terrible, but not with a tyrant's ruthless contempt. Rather, it is terrible as a rebuke to the unloving, as a condemnation to those who spurn love offered so unconditionally, as a chastisement in its refusal to force itself on those who hate themselves, hating love. It is a blasphemous monstrosity so to distort that flaming love which is God's will into a searing flame of destruction to men, for this is to make God a devil. From the beginning until now men have hurled themselves into hell, but as St. Augustine says, no wise man is the cause of another man becoming worse. Now God surpasses all men in wisdom and in love. Much less, therefore, is God the cause of man becoming worse. Quote, unquote. 
we become worse by rejecting the love that brought us into being, and that is offered to us for eternity. Our hell, on earth and in eternity, is to have our choice confirmed, to lose forever the God we would not welcome. Yet even in the face of the failure of men, we see an awful confirmation of the unfailing divine love. Love cannot be forced, nor will it use violence. In his image he made us free, and his love refuses to take back any of that original gift, refuses to violate our freedom. If we love him, we do so freely, for love is a gift or it is nothing. We do not thwart his will when we spurn his love. Slamming the door on his love, we open the door to his justice, that yet, yet that does not go beyond the declared intentions of our free will. We will have nothing of God, so be it, and the choice stands for eternity. The terror is not in God's will, but in the fickleness and perversity of the hearts of men. That same insight into the eternal activity of God's will, its eternal loving, forbids the foolish despair that smothers so many lives in the face of the unchanging character of God's will. Again, we are victims of a monstrosity of our own concoction. Surely there would be good reason for despair if there could be a change, if the divine will could cease its loving and the sharing of its love. The immutable will of God is not a granite wall against which men dash their lives. It is not a blind, heartless fate that renders vain the prayers, the sufferings, the battles, the works of men. These things of men, prayers, merits, sufferings, and all the rest, are by no means futile. They are the coins by which heaven is bought, not because they change the will of God, but because they fulfill it. And we'll pause there. <laughs>